0: Welcome back to the Grand Valley Church Podcast, a community of faith in Brandon, Manitoba. We hope this message helps you meet Jesus and grow in faith. Well, as I mentioned before, we are launching into a new series today, and I always like launching into a new series and saying, you know, this is the new topic that we're jumping into that we're going to be walking through for the next couple of weeks because it's a time for us to say, hey, this is what we want to focus on because there's something in this for us to hear, something in this for us to focus on, and so this new series that we're doing is called asking for a friend. And maybe you've heard that phrase before, or maybe you haven't. But if someone asks a question and then they tack on at the end, "I'm just asking for a friend." what you really know in that moment is they're really asking a question that they want to know the answer to. But if we say, I'm just asking for a friend, it means we're trying to help this this friend avoid the embarrassment of asking this question. And so it's a phrase we kind of use to say, this is why we're going to ask a question that maybe we're a little scared to ask. Maybe we're a little tentative and we're not sure we want to ask it. And we've done a series similar to this one in the past where we said we're going to dive into some difficult topics. And the last time we did a series like this one, we kind of took a theological perspective. We said, let's dig into the difficult questions about faith. Things like, does God exist? Does God even exist? Has science killed God? Why does evil and suffering exist? Why do we say that Jesus is the only path to heaven? And we're going to take a little different approach to this series, and this time we talk about difficult questions. But if those questions I've asked are ones that are on your mind, I want to invite you to head to our website sometime and go to the bottom of any page and type it in the search bar, Problem of God. We did a series last year where we tackled these difficult Problem of God questions together. But for this series, we're taking a little different approach. For this series, we're going to be talking about some of the more cultural and social questions that people have about Christianity. And kind of more specifically, these are questions that someone who maybe doesn't know Jesus would want to ask of Christians. But they're kind of a little scared because some of these questions are difficult, some of these questions we're going to wrestle through, and we're going to look at Scripture and how does Scripture respond to some of these questions. But I don't normally start a series with a disclaimer, but this is a series that I am going to start with a disclaimer. Because as we go into these topics, one of the things that we might realize is that what Scripture says about this topic and what I believe and what I think I believe may not actually line up. And so whenever we see a gap between what Scripture says and what we believe and what we have understand, there's a question we have to ask ourselves. Am I willing to let my perception be shifted by Scripture? Now, I'm not under any illusion that all of us are going to end at 100% agreement on this. Because one of the things that's so beautiful about the church and the way that God created us to be and to live in a relationship with each other and with him is that unity in Christ does not require uniformity. We do not have to be 100% identical and hold identical viewpoints on everything because, to be honest, that would be the most boring church to ever be part of if everyone said the exact same thing, if everyone dressed the same way. like That would just be weird. And so the unity we have in Christ of who God is, what he's done for us, his love for us, that is what we hold core. And if at the end of this series we're saying, you know, we still disagree on some of these topics, that's okay. But here's, here's kind of the disclaimer. On this series, if I offend you with what I say, I'm actually doing my job. Because as a pastor before God, I am responsible to help you grow in your faith. That means I, my role is to take you places you would not normally want to go. And anyone who's ever tried to walk a dog that wanted to go a different... Uh, I'm not that I'm making a comparison here. That was a bad analogy to go into. Sorry. But anyone who's... Okay, how about this? If you're trying to herd your children, and herding is the right term, saying this is where we're going, and your kids are saying, no, we're going off that direction, you know, you've got to do some work. You've got to bring people together. And so that's my goal is to, as a group, to herd us towards Christ. This is a bad illustration. I just shouldn't have gone there. Anyway, so what's the topic today? What are we actually going to talk about? So here's the question. This is a question I've been asked. When people find out I'm a pastor, plane rides get really interesting when someone says, like, well, what do you do? I'm a pastor. Sometimes you get the, I'm putting on my headphones now response. Or sometimes you get the, well, I really want to know about this. And it's like, oh, all right, here we go. But it's fun. So here's the question we're talking about. And this is a question that I've been asked multiple times. Maybe you've heard, and it's this. Why are Christians so... Angry. And you might be thinking, wait a second, we're a calm bunch. We're not angry. But whenever someone asks this question, why are Christians so angry? They have a previous experience. They have an experience somewhere in their lives where they encountered someone who made them feel, you know, feel like junk. Maybe it was, and let's go to maybe the stereotype for a second and then we'll bring it to something a little more practical, but maybe they were somewhere and there was literally the guy on the soapbox on the corner shouting, you're all condemned, you're all going to hell, and they're just yelling about how awful everything is and how you have to turn your life around, and it's just anger, it's just hate. Or maybe it's from seeing on media people who are Christians who are protesting decisions, and they're like, why are they so worked up? Why are they so upset about this? Or maybe it's when you go on Facebook and you see what people post and you're sometimes like, I don't think that person would say that in person. But when it's online, they feel a freedom to say something. And usually underneath this question, if someone says, why are Christians so angry? They've had one of these negative experiences. They've had the experience of maybe they they walked through the doors of a church and they just felt judged and condemned and felt like they didn't belong, felt like they they shouldn't be there. And that's the opposite of what's true. The church should be the most welcoming, the most inviting place for people, no matter where they come from, where they're at in their life, because we're all trying to move towards Jesus. So when this question comes up, oftentimes our first response is to try and prove the question wrong. To say, well, you know, that's just a really vocal minority. That's not all Christians. And maybe we even have the data to back it up. Maybe we have the numbers of saying, well, that's less than 2% of Christians that act that way. I don't know if that's access data. I'm just making that up. But if we go to the data and we just dismiss the question, or if we get really defensive, what do you mean? You think I'm angry? If that's the response, if you get defensive or dismissive, you have violated their trust in this moment because they've come to you with this question, whether it's their own or asking for a friend, why is this going on? And if we get dismissive or defensive we actually disrespect the person asking the question because they're not looking for data. They're looking to make sense of an experience, an experience that wasn't positive, was likely quite negative, and they want to get to the bottom of it because I think most people know deep down little bits about who Jesus is. They know that Jesus is love, and then they look at Christians and say, why don't they line up? And so if someone ever comes to you with a question like this or similar, there's a simple rule to start with. We need to make sure we do not get dismissive or defensive. But instead, we've got to remember that an honest question deserves an honest response. If this is a question that is heartfelt, this is a question they have, dismissing it or removing it, all it does is means they're going to keep asking this question. and We're losing out on an opportunity to say, no, really, this is who Jesus is. So why, why is this? And, and when you look at our society as a whole, It doesn't take a lot of research to realize that the level of anger, kind of the baseline level of anger in our society, has been rising considerably over the last decade or the last half decade. You know, we see it anywhere you look, whether it's on social media, whether you look at the news. One of my rules, generally, is never read the comment section on a news article. But because I was coming up to this series, and I knew I was talking about this, for the last, like, month, I've been making it a habit to actually go through and read the comments on news articles, and it is awful. Why is it that we feel as a society, so, you know, whether it's, I don't know if it's entitlement or what it is, to say that we should have a say on absolutely everything, and that say usually begins with anger. Why? I don't really, I don't, we're we're not going to dig into the scope of why this is happening in our society, because that's actually, to be honest, a little too big of a question. There's too many competing theories that, that will be hard to nail down, but if, even if we want to say, let's take the internet out of the picture, is anger on the rise? And one of the things that Statistics Canada tracks every year is they track crime rates. And one of the ones, this, this data was shocking to me. In 2017, reported hate crimes in Canada were 47% higher than 2016. Hate crimes in Canada are increasing at an alarming rate. In fact, from 2009 to 2013, rates of hate crime in Canada were actually decreasing rather steadily. And I mean, I want to see those drop right off. But in 2013, things started slowly climbing. And then 2016 to 2017, there was this 47% jump. We live in a society that has this baseline of anger. And sometimes we might think, well, maybe the response to that is, you know, Christians aren't getting more angry. Our whole society's getting angry, and we're just keeping up with the Joneses, right? No, that is an awful response to say that we should mirror and reflect the anger of the culture around us. But here's something we can do. When someone comes to you with this question and says, why are Christians so angry? We need to remember something. We can't fix someone else's anger but we can choose what to do with ours. We can't control how someone else uses anger to respond to a situation, but we can choose. And it's a daily, hourly, sometimes by the minute choice. We can choose what we do with our anger. I can't control what anyone else does. None of us can control what anyone else does, but we control our own response. We can choose what we do when we feel anger. And so that's what we're going to focus on in this. Because if someone comes to you with this question, why are Christians so angry? They're looking to make sense of a previous experience. And so we're going to take our time today and we're going to look at scripture. We're going to look at what Jesus teaches about anger. We're going to look at some of the Old Testament teachings. And we're going to look at this together to say, how do we control our anger? What do we do with ours? Because we can't control what another group does with anger. But we can choose to say how we represent who Christ is and how we handle our anger. And so to start, we're going to go to one of kind of the uh, most pivotal passages of the New Testament. And this is early on in Jesus' ministry. So around, well, year zero, around there, Jesus was born. And when he was 30 years old, he started his ministry. So uh, the first 30 years of his life, we know very little about Jesus. But at age 30, he's baptized and he begins his ministry. And he starts teaching people about a new way of understanding their relationship with God. And as these crowds growing, Jesus gets to this point where he can't really enter the cities very easily, because people are following him and they're listening to him, and they're saying, "What you're saying is, is incredible. It is so different from what we've always heard, but it rings true, and it's leading us closer to God. And so we have this passage in the Gospel of Matthew called "The Sermon on the Mount," where Jesus has this time where all these people are following him, and he goes through these long, wide-ranging wide teachings about how we can live in a relationship with God and with each other. And in this, he uses these statements where he says, you have heard this, and he refers to their Old Testament law. He refers to kind of their legal code that set the Israelites apart from the rest of the world. And every time Jesus says, but I tell you this. And so he says this, he says, you have heard that our ancestors were told you must not murder. If you commit murder, you are subject to judgment. And that little phrase, subject to judgment, is kind of interesting because what it means is if you commit a crime, your fate now becomes in the hands of someone else. In their system, that meant that the, their legal system that was all based around the temple, it was up to the Levites to make the decision about your fate. And the penalty for murder was death. They they had capital punishment in those days. And so if you committed murder, that meant your fate was now in the hands of the priests and and the leaders to decide what to do with you. And then Jesus changes this. He says, but I say, if you are even angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. If you call someone an idiot, you're in danger of being brought before the court. And if you curse someone, you're in danger of the fires of hell. And it's like, whoa, wait a second, Jesus. What are you doing with this teaching? Because we know that that's the punishment for murder. And Jesus says, but if you're even angry with someone, and the the actual word that Jesus used for this was an anger referring to an anger that is seething, that is like lingering in you that you cannot let go of. It's just always, always there. This is a deep-seated hatred, this anger. Because prior to this point, Prior to Jesus saying this, you could want to kill someone. Your life could be infected with anger towards the certain individual, but as long as you never actually act on that anger, you're good, right? That's what the Old Testament, that's what the Ten Commandments still allowed. As long as you don't cross that final line, you're good. But Jesus changes it. And he says it's not about how close can you get to that line before you actually step over the edge and commit murder. He says, your anger is what determines what's going on with you. Your anger, how you view others. Jesus takes this from a legalistic boundary and says, no, this is actually about relationships and community. This is how you connect with each other that this matters. And so if you are even angry with someone, if you are holding on to anger, if you're holding on to a grudge, in Jesus's eyes, that is equivalent to wanting to murder that person to actually taking that step. And so Jesus goes on and he says, so how do you live this out? Because that's a pretty steep requirement. And so he goes on in the next verse. He says this, so if you are presenting a sacrifice at the altar in the temple. I'm going to pause there just for a second, because before Jesus, their whole legal system was based around the temple. It was based around that if you broke one of the laws, if you committed a sin, there was a prescribed response to it. There was an offering, a sacrifice, that you would bring to the temple, that you would give to God as an act of repentance and to show your remorse. And then that sacrifice is what would essentially absolve you of your sin. That was the way their system works. And now Jesus, we know this about him, that when he willfully chose the cross, when he died for us, he was the once and all sacrifice that ended that whole temple system. Jesus is the sacrifice for our sins, for anyone who chooses to put their trust in Jesus and be covered by him. Our sins are forgiven. And that is a forgiveness that is open to absolutely everyone. But at this point when Jesus is teaching, this is before he's done that. This is about three years, two and a half years before that. And so Jesus says this, if you're presenting a sacrifice at the altar in the temple and you suddenly remember that someone has something against you, leave your sacrifice there at the altar, go and be reconciled to that person, then come back and offer your sacrifice to God. So there's something interesting that Jesus says. He doesn't say if you've offended someone or if someone has offended you. He just says if someone has something against you. It doesn't matter if you were the perpetrator or the victim of someone's anger it is up to you to reconcile it. Leave your sacrifice. Go be reconciled. Come back to offer your sacrifice. Now Jesus knows that the temple system is going to come to a close. So when he gives this teaching, he is setting up, this is how the church is to act after. That how we treat anger, how we treat differences, gets focused on a relational thing. How do we be reconciled with others? How do we do this? How do we live this out? And what it does is it takes humility to actually go to someone and say, hey, I know we have a problem. Let's talk about it. How can we figure this out? How can we find resolution? How can we find restoration? Because that is the antidote to anger. Because anger that is untouched will only grow and fester and build. But if we uncover it to the light, if we say, let's talk about this, let's discuss this, we can actually find healing instead of letting that anger grow. And so, this is the baseline teaching that Jesus gives to the church of saying, if you are angry, it's equivalent to murder. And so, you need to let go of that anger. And if you realize that you're angry with someone, or if someone's angry with you, it doesn't matter which side you are, the responsibility is on you to resolve that. And so, there's a question what do we do with that? Where in our lives do we know there is an issue we have to go and find resolution for? And that's a difficult thing, it's not going to be easy. But Jesus is saying it's worth it. Now, when we talk about anger, there's also this question that comes up of saying, well, hang on a second. Aren't there times when anger is justified, when anger is the right response to a situation? Aren't there things that happen in our world that we should be angry about? And the answer to that is obviously yes. There are things that should evoke a response of anger in us. But Scripture is also very clear on saying what it is that we're allowed to be angry about. Because remember, when we hold anger, we can do some awful things with it. And so we've got to be careful that the way we use anger, even when it's justifiable, is done within the limits of what God gives to us. And so if we go back to the Old Testament, we go to a book called Proverbs, and Proverbs is this collection of wisdom, and a big chunk of it was written by King Solomon, who was known as the wisest man and the richest man who ever lived. In fact, even if you adjust his wealth for inflation for today, he would still be the most wealthy person by several orders of magnitude. And he was wise, deeply wise, because when God said, you are now the king, I'll give you anything you want, he didn't ask for gold and wealth and influence. He asked for wisdom. And so God gave him wisdom. And so in this book of Proverbs, it's just there's no real narrative thread to it. It's just a con- continual gathering of these things of wisdom and these moments of truth that we are to reflect on. And so in Proverbs 6, starting at verse 16, this is what the book of Proverbs says. It says, Here are six things God hates, and one more that he loathes with a passion. So this is our listing. This is what we can be angry about because this is what God is angry about. And he says this. He says, Eyes that are arrogant. If you have an arrogant, arrogant spirit, arrogant view. He says, A tongue that lies. If you dwell in, in falsehoods, if you always seek to corrupt the truth. Hands that murder the innocent. Hands that cause victimization, that harm people. A heart that hatches evil plots, which means you're always looking out for yourself. You're always looking for opportunities to do evil. Feet that race down a wicked track. That's kind of repeating it. saying if you are always eager to do evil and to harm others. A mouth that lies under oath. That means someone who subverts their justice system. If you lie under oath, you are denying someone the justice that they deserve. And lastly, says a troublemaker in the family, and, and other translations will kind of take this a little broader and say is someone who sows discord wherever they go, someone who just no matter where they go, they cause issues. But when you look at this list, there's something very specific that I want to make sure we realize and we see about this. Every single one of these items is a character issue, not a group of people. Every single one of these items is a character issue that any one of us could have. God is not saying that there is a group of people that we have a justifiable right to be angry toward. Not at all. These are only character issues. And these are character issues that any one of us could have. And in fact, if we look at that list, and if we're brutally honest with ourselves, I'm not going to ask you to put up your hands at all this, but if we're brutally honest with ourselves, we'll look at that list and say, you know, some of those apply to me. I've done some of those things. I've had those character flaws. But what makes God angry is this issue of character, not a group of people. Not, we cannot say, and there are groups within Christianity that have done this and said, God hates blank, and they'll put whatever in there. God hates the political party I don't agree with, or God hates this subset of people, or God hates this group of people. That is not true. The only thing that Scripture gives an allowance for is the character issues that divide us from God, the character issues that harm and wound people who are innocent. That is what God hates. And so we have to ask this question. So when we see injustice, when we see things like slavery, sex trafficking, when we see horrible instances of abuse, when we see people, I mean, murder is one too, of saying when we see those things, we should have a response of anger. Because it means that we know that that's not how it's supposed to be. But we kid ourselves if we let that anger turn into anger towards the person or the perpetrator. We need to keep our anger focused on the issue, not the person. So what do we do with this anger when we feel it? What do we do with it? And and sometimes, you know, we have this illusion that we think that anger is just a negative emotion that we should try to get rid of. And we won't be able to because there's something unique about anger. And this is how God created us and how God designed us. And we can go too far with this. But this is something unique that that our scientists and our our sociologists, our psychologists are starting to discover. And they're writing about this saying that unlike other negative emotions, so I'm quoting Dr. Alan Lambert, assistant professor of psychological and brain science. You know, this guy's way smarter than I am. And this is what he is coming to understand about Anger. He says, unlike most negative emotions like fear or sadness, which are part of the avoidance center in the brain, that means when we feel those things, we want to get away from them. We want to avoid them. He says, anger is an approach emotion that actually motivates people to act on and try to fix the perceived problems in their environments. So when we feel anger about one of these things that God hates, when we see injustice and we feel angry, we have a choice. Are we just going to let that be anger and let ourselves be consumed by it? Or is it going to motivate us to do something about it? Is it going to motivate us to try and be part of the solution and to solve this issue? See, we've got to ask this question of ourselves and ask this deep question and be honest of saying, if you are angry, what are you angry about? Are you angry because you like that feeling of anger? Because you like that rage? Or are we angry because we say we need to do something about this? In fact, uh, maybe a way of clarifying this question further is to ask ourselves, is my anger motivating me to make a difference in the lives of people who are affected by injustice? Is our anger motivating us to make a difference? Is our anger helping us to be part of the solution if we dig back to our initial question, why are Christians so angry? If someone asks you that question, there is a wound underneath that question. And showing all the data, saying, oh, that's just, that was just one person, that doesn't solve it. But instead, are we willing to say, you know, how do we get to healing in this? How do we move towards being part of the solution when we see injustice, when we see things like this? And so we've got to be careful that we don't let our anger at injustice turn into anger towards a person. Lately, there's, uh, there's been a big news story in Manitoba about these two young men who were on the run from B.C. who were wanted in connection to some murders in B.C. And those guys ended up in northern Manitoba. And as I was reading the comment sections on the RCMP Facebook posts, and as I was reading the comment sections on CBC and, and CTV and global You know what the most common response was? The most common comment was, I hope those two guys die. I hope that when they're found, they get shot and killed. You know what? Those guys need to stand before justice. And this week, you know, their remains were found. They haven't officially confirmed that, but the bodies are going for autopsy. They found two human remains. But our response to that as followers of Christ should be yeah, there should be some anger in that. These guys broke the law. These guys cut people's lives short. They should stand for justice. But our response should never be hatred towards that. We don't know these two guys' life story. And I'm not trying to just soften what they did. But there are families around these people who are deeply wounding. I couldn't imagine being a family member of one of those two guys and reading the comments on the news stories. Could you imagine that? That would be awful. So instead, we got to ask this question. When we feel anger, when we feel outrage, what do we do with it? How do we keep it about the issue and not make it about that person? Because, wait a second, remember what Jesus said. If you are angry at someone, you are subject to judgment. If we let those thoughts take root in us, we are the ones who become subject to God's judgment. So how do we change this? How do we get out of this? How do we get away from anger? I want to take us to two last passages, one from Jesus and one from Paul. And the first one is this, and you might wonder at first, what does this have to do with anger? But when Jesus was with his disciples, just the night before he was going to be arrested and killed for crimes he didn't commit, his whole, his whole trial was a sham to get Jesus killed, to get rid of the problem that the religious leaders had with him. But this is what Jesus tells his disciples. He doesn't tell them, you need to fight this tooth and nail. No, he says to the this, "Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples." It doesn't say your hate, it doesn't say your anger, it doesn't say your outrage, it doesn't say your social media posts or the memes you share. It says your love. Our love is what proves to the world that we are Jesus' disciples. If we want to combat anger, powering up with more anger will never succeed and will never make any progress. But if we lean into love, that is how we reveal it. Because if someone comes to you with that question, why are Christians so angry? And you know there's some hurt, there's some pain underneath that. If someone has a perception that Christians are a group of angry people, the best response is to demonstrate a life transformed by Jesus' love. When we reveal Jesus' love to people, that is what responds to the question of hate. That is what responds to the question of anger. More anger will never solve the issue of anger. But love, that will. And so later on, when Paul is writing to the church of Rome, and Paul, through his whole ministry, wanted to get to Rome because Rome is the most important city of the known world at that time. And he knows if there is a flourishing, thriving church in Rome, that that is one of the best ways that the church can share with the world the message of Jesus' love. And so when Paul writes his letter to the Roman church, he knows his desire is to get there eventually, but he packs so much into his letter, of, letter to the Roman church because he wants them to get it right. He wants them to be powerful and authentic and influential witnesses for who God is, who Jesus is, who, what his love is. And so in his passage in Romans 12, Paul writes this. He says, don't just pretend to love others. Don't fake it. Really love them hate what is wrong, hold tightly to what is good. He's reinforcing what Jesus taught before. He's reinforcing the Old Testament list of what is allowable to be angry at and saying it is issues. It doesn't say hate who is wrong. It says hate what is wrong. How do we hold to what is good? Because love is the only thing that will defeat anger. Love is the only thing that will replace it and remove it. So we got to ask ourselves some questions. Because this is an all-skate. This is whether you're here and you're a follower of Jesus or you're not. Maybe you're just questioning, you're checking things out. Thanks for being here, by the way. But we got to ask this question of ourselves. How are we showing anger? Or how are we showing love to the people we interact with? And there's even a question under this that kind of gets under my skin a little of saying this, how can we share God's love with people if all they've ever seen is angry Christians? If their perception of what it means to be a follower of Jesus is suddenly I have to hate a whole bunch of things, no one wants to be part of that because that's an untrue representation of what it means to follow Jesus because when we follow Jesus, when we recognize that he is who he says he is, that scripture really does present the best way of life, that God put us here for a reason and that Jesus is the example of who we are to be to influence and shape our world for the better. We've got to ask ourselves, how are we living that out? How are we showing love instead of anger? And if you're feeling anger, if there's things that make you upset, things that make you angry, you've got to ask this question. And maybe this is a question you might have to sit down with a counselor and wrestle out with them because they can ask you the the questions that will dig into the reasons behind this. But we've got to ask, what's at the bottom of your anger? If you feel anger towards a group or anger towards an issue or anger towards something, you've got to ask, what's at the bottom of it? Why am I feeling this way? Because here's the bottom line. Anger cannot create something good, but love always does that's why when jesus came he came to be the revelation of god's love to us because he was god with flesh on come into our world to reveal christ to to reveal god to us through christ so what are we doing how are we creating with love instead of letting anger get the best of us let's take a moment let's pray about this together god we know that you came to show your light and your love to the world. And when you rose back to heaven, you gave your followers this this mission to be your witnesses where they were, to go further with it, to go even further with it, and eventually to reach the ends of of the world with your love and your peace and your presence. And so, Lord, that's the mission that we still have, and you know it because you've given this mission to us. And it's up to us to lean in to follow this. It's up to us to dive in and to be your representatives. And we know you are with us always. So Lord, would you help us to realize that when we have anger in our lives, when we start feeling upset, when we get this anger, would you help us have that gut check? Would we be able to listen to your guidance and to ask, is this of you? Is this anger at injustice? Is this anger at an issue, or have we let it turn into anger at a person? And if it is, Lord, we know that you love to forgive, that you love to care for us. You love to show your forgiveness and your mercy and your grace. And so, Lord, would you help us to receive that? Would you help us to turn from ways we have used anger improperly, and instead turn towards showing your love deeply? Lord, help us in this. In your name we pray, amen. Next week, we're going to be diving into another one of these difficult questions, and I'm not going to tell you the topic today, but we're going to, if you follow us through the week on social media, we're going to drop a few little hints along the way of what we're going to be talking about next week. But next Sunday, we're going to dive into another one of these deep questions that we are going to ask for a friend. So folks, I hope you have an amazing week, and we'll see you next Sunday. We hope this message helped you to take the next step in your faith journey. If you're in the area, we'd love to have you join us Sundays at 11am. You can find out more about us by going to mygrandvalley.ca.